Hi, I'm Carlos Frias, the host of Sundial. We're bringing you some of our best conversations for our spring pledge drive. First, let's talk to Dr. Dorothy Jenkins-Fields. She remembers a time when she walked into the Miami-Dade County Public Library and asked for books written by black people. The clerk told her they didn't have any among the 10,000 books on their shelves. Dr. Fields changed all that. She founded the Black Archives, a nonprofit that collects and organizes the African-American experience in Miami-Dade County. Then we'll get some great book recommendations from two of the biggest readers I know, Connie Ogle, a national book reviewer and the former Miami Herald books editor, and Mitchell Kaplan, founder of Books and Books and co-founder of the Miami Book Fair. They tell us which books should be on our nightstands in 2023. Dr. Dorothy Jenkins Fields had no idea how her life would change the day she went looking for books written by black people about black people. It was 1974. She was the first and the only black faculty member at an all-white school in Miami. She'd marched with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. when she was a student at Spelman College in Atlanta. Now she was a school librarian, and she thought it was important to teach Miami's black history. So she called the Dade County Public Library and asked for every book they had available on Miami's black history. The clerk told her they didn't have any. 10,000 books on the shelves and not a single one written by a black person about Miami's black history. Dr. Fields changed all that. She went on to found the Black Archives, a nonprofit that collects and organizes the African-American experience in Miami-Dade County. It's a cathedral for black history, photos, books, documents, and it's become a national resources for scholars and regular folks in the community. She led the restoration of the historic Lyric Theater where the Black Archives are housed, just blocks from where she grew up in Overtown. Well, Dr. Fields, I know that specifically education, from what I've read, was very important in your home. Take me back to that. Yes, when I was born, uh, before the end of World War II, see how, God, how good your math is. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't dare do the math on a woman. <laughs> I am smart enough. When I was born, my mother, her two sisters, and four brothers were college graduates. Mm. Um, four were, or three were, um, teachers, um, two medical doctors, mm. uh, and one a lawyer who later became the second black judge in Miami and the fourth in the state of Florida. Wow. So, so that, and that, and they were all living in Miami's colored town, Overtown, just two blocks north of the Lyric. Wow. So having that many educated people uh, for me was uh, difficult. It was difficult. <laughs> in what way? Well, um, it made me feel as if uh, I needed to do something with my life. Oh, okay. That's a good kind of difficult. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I didn't, I couldn't imagine um, doing anything special. I, um, you know, like a regular kid. Uh, but I remember as early as third grade that it was a weight that I carried on my shoulders. Hmm. That I realized that the other children uh at school in my class, mm -hmm. didn't have the same kind of um, 
experiences. Um, when we got when I got home in the afternoons, my uncles and aunts would come uh, by our home because I lived with my grandmother and my stepfather. Mm -hmm. And uh, my uncles and aunts would come by the house to see my grandmother and uh, talk about their day. Okay. And uh, two medical doctors talking about patients and the kind of day they had, a lawyer, uh, uh, t school teachers, everybody talking about, uh, you know, the kinds of things that they went through. And um, that was very interesting and entertaining. Uh, but I wondered, what would I be able to do? And oh. so the stories they told about early Miami and growing up in Miami uh, were stories that I listened to and 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 did not want to hear. Oh, why? <laughs> over and over and over oh, again, they told the same stories. I did not know that those stories were being told to me for me to eventually uh, be the the person to tell the community. There was an expectation for you to go to college. Right? Absolutely. There was, a, there was a, that was very much something that you grew up with, like that this that there was a next step, which is which is saying something because, if I'm not mistaken, for your for folks of your mom's generation, your uncle's generation, uh, the ability to go to high school was not uh, was was difficult in Miami Dade County. Very interesting that you should say that. Absolutely, my understanding that my uh, maternal grandmother. Um, and grandfather, both were born and grew up in Harbor Island, Bahamas. The original Miami founders, the Bahamians. Yes. <laughs> and uh, my grandmother uh, worked in the Bahamas as a child growing up. She worked for a family, uh, and the father was a white medical doctor. Hmm. Uh, when that family got newspapers from the States, after they finished reading the newspapers, my understanding is they would say, Ida, throw these papers away. And instead of throwing them away, she would take them home and read them. Wow. And she read that uh, black people were doing well, uh, it, not only in the States, but in Jacksonville and Atlanta. There were schools for black children. So she uh, wanted to do it the, well, she did it the old-fashioned way, get married, have children, come to the States, and um, send those children to college so they could be educated. Wow, so even back into the 1800s, you already have a legacy yes. of people thinking about education as a way of advancing yourself as a person. Absolutely. Wow. She was determined that that would happen, so they did do it the old-fashioned way. They uh, got married uh, in the Bahamas, <laughs> got to Key West, and two babies were born. Conks, original conks. Yes. All right. And then in 1903, moved to Miami, adjacent to downtown, mm -hmm. colored town. Mm -hmm. Which is what today we call Overtown. Overtown, yes. Although there were relatives living in Coconut Grove, but my grandmother, I understand, did not want to live in, quote, the sticks. <laughs> so Coconut Grove was the sticks. The back wilderness, in yes, yes. <laughs> she wanted to live in uh, um, a community where they were 
they had stores and uh, they were building. She was a city girl. She was a city girl, that's and she right. wanted to live uh, next to downtown because that's where. And, and of course, and so she has children that grew up here and in Miami Dade County, as I as I understand. If you were black in Miami Dade County, uh, there was no available high school edu- public high school education after the eighth grade. So that means Correct. your mom and all her uncles and aunts had to leave Miami. Yes. Wow. Not my mother, but the first five, four or five children. And my grandmother was a washerwoman. She washed clothes like the other washerwomen for the tourists. Yes. How many immigrants have, have made that trek coming here and, <laughs> and working in the hospitality industry to, to pick your family up? Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. So uh, clearly for her, then, education was a way to have them have a different experience. And that was formative for you because you grew up around all these college folks. And, and then I understand you went to, you were in Spelman College. Yes. Which is a, a well-respected historically black college in Atlanta. Absolutely. And it was at Spelman College in Atlanta that I met Dr. Martin Luther King. Living in Atlanta was an experience in the 60s. When I got there and took the test, I failed the reading test. Okay. Um, At Spelman. Yes, Mm -hmm. at Spelman. It was not okay with my mother. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. And so I was assigned to... What was uh, that conversation like with mom? What did she say? Not good. Oh, not good. (laughs) So I was assigned to a reading class. But I'm old enough now to realize that everything happens for a reason. Mm-hmm. Remedial reading. Okay. Christine King Ferris was the reading teacher for remedial students. Okay. She never let us forget. You're here to learn to read. They didn't teach you when you were wherever you came from. Wherever you came you from, but you will learn to read in my class. Oh wow. Okay. And about three or four weeks later, after she introduced us to her way of doing things. She said, and by the way, my brother will be coming from Alabama uh, with his family. He's a preacher, and he has, um, he's going to try to open uh, Rich's department store in Atlanta because uh, we can all go down and buy clothes and uh, buy food, but we can't sit down and eat. Because Rich's department store, which still exists today, I believe, yes, uh, it, it, was, it was still segregated at the time. Absolutely. Uh, and but many of us had charge cards. That was one of my gifts for graduation from mm. high school. Okay. Uh, and so I could, you know, we could go and buy food, but you had to take it outside to eat. And so Dr. King and her uh, brother, her brother, and others had already gotten together, and um, uh, they were going to start the marches. That was Dr. Dorothy Jenkins Fields. She's the founder of the Black Archives at the Lyric Theater in Overtown. We continue our conversation with Dr. Fields after a quick break. But first, if you like interviews like this, remember, your contributions to public radio help us make your favorite shows, like Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias. Welcome back to Sundial during WLRN's Spring Pledge Drive. Let's continue our conversation with Dr. Dorothy Jenkins Fields, the founder of the Black Archives in Overtown. So Uh, tell me about that. You're there. You... You meet Dr. Was it a big? Was he a big deal at that at that time? Absolutely not. Huh. Um, understand that his sister, uh, the remedial reading teacher, Christine King Ferris, who I understand is still alive and maybe about ninety eight or ninety nine years old. Oh, bless her. Yes. Um, <clears throat> let us know that the reason that we would be going would be to help with the um, 
press releases and you'd better not make a mistake uh, with the typing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and of course, we, uh, we, we had uh, electric typewriters at the time, there was before computers. Okay. She said, uh, uh, make coffee uh, and do whatever, you're the gophers, do whatever needs to be done uh, in order to, um, to help them with what they're doing. And so it was fine, uh, and at first, of course, everybody in the class went, mm -hmm. and then later on, just a few of us uh, uh, went. Uh, but um, Dr. King was usually there um, uh, with Hosea Williams and all the people that you read about, uh, and they weren't famous then. They were there. They were people doing, doing the they, work, doing the work, mm -hmm. doing uh, resisting. And so the uh, students from Atlanta University, Clark, Morehouse, Spelman, ITC, International Intertheological Theolog uh, Seminary, Morris Brown, uh, and eventually students from Emory started coming and uh, other schools. We always think about the white allies. Hmm. And we, we, we would, sometimes we would be 500 strong wow. walking from the Atlanta University Center to downtown Atlanta. Paint that picture for me. So how long is that walk? And uh, wide streets, walking down the streets, down the sidewalks? or Down the sidewalks. And when we got to Rich's department store, which is <clears throat> was quite a large complex, mm -hmm. and I mean, maybe two blocks, two city blocks, we got, he, gave, he always gave us our instructions. And it was a human chain hmm. that we made around uh, Rich's department store, and across the street from us, at different intervals, march the Ku Klux Klan. Oh boy! The counter march, and, and they for, would for a kid who who had shown up and seen Confederate flags flying atop buildings for the first time. That must have been yes. a terrifying it was, experience. Absolutely, uh, and they would come. Sometimes they would march across the street, and then many times they would come on the same sidewalk where we were and do a counter march hmm. in full regalia. Sometimes they would carry um, bowling balls hmm. in shopping bags and swing them to hit us in the stomach. Oh my God. To stop us from having, they're, they're, they would say to stop, stop y'all from having children. Oh. They would squirt thing in our faces, water, just all kinds of things. And Dr. King would be walking, and he would say, keep walking. Don't say anything. Just keep walking. Students from the guys from Morehouse and Atlanta University and Clark uh, would um, be on, across the street because sometimes the Ku Klux Klan would get close to us and push us out into traffic. And the guys from Morehouse would come and try to cradle so that we would not be it was a harrowing experience but but what a what a formational experience for you i would imagine to to see that to see that response from dr king and and how he was teaching you guys yes. to, to respond to that kind of vitriol absolutely i mean it, it wasn't until the tv cameras started coming and we started reading in the newspaper that other people thought what we did was brave. Uh, we just thought, I just thought that it was something that, that needed to be done uh, because we wanted to, I wanted to use my charge card, mm -hmm. my credit card. <laughs> <laughs>
finally in the spring of 61, I guess it was, they allowed some of the students to sit down in Woolworth. There was a big discussion as to whether or not, if they were served, the students should eat. And the decision was that, yes, they probably have black cooks, so it's okay to eat. (laughs) (laughs) All those extra steps you're thinking about. Yes, yes, yes. And so they did. Mm Mm-hmm. This one time they sat down and they ate and we were all standing around, finished eating. And then I guess we all realized at the same time, no one had any money. Oh, no. (laughs) How are we going to pay for this? Because we never expected (laughs) to get that far. To get that far. So then the police were called. They were going to arrest the students. They were able to call the university presidents. So all five university presidents came out and paid for the students who had eaten. And so on some occasions, going back to campus, Mm -hmm. about four or five o'clock in the afternoon, we would walk back again in line, get back to campus, and there would be a cross burning. Oh, my goodness. And you come back from Atlanta, from that experience, back to Miami, changed, I would imagine. And you came back with this idea, thinking about your family, how am I going to make my mark? Mm-hmm. You get to the point where you're a librarian at, uh, at Myrtle Grove. And that's an elementary, it was an elementary, elementary school, school and still is, uh-huh. yes. And I, was, I didn't know it at the time, but I was the first black on the faculty. So sure. how, how was your experience there, being the first It was black interesting, woman on staff, black the on staff? library clerk, mm-hmm. uh, Mrs. Gerard, Florence Gerard, uh, an older woman. <laughs> yeah, you just you just held up air quotes around older woman. <laughs> yes, uh, was not happy at all. She had never worked for a black person, of mm. course, and I mean, and she was so uncomfortable. She she retired early. I mean, she wasn't there more than three or four months, and so the opportunity when I started in seventy four, uh, seeing the uh, advanced ads about preparing for the bicentennial Mm -hmm. and that everybody should be involved. And I thought to myself, well, this would be a good time for uh, for me to learn about black history because except for what my family had said. And growing up, I figured they didn't know what they were talking about. Uh, The black history you learned, you learned around the table around the grandmother's house in Overtown. Yes. Yes. From my uncles and aunts and from my grandmother. And you thought, let me learn from a, from an academic level, what Miami's black history. Absolutely. 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 So calling the library. And at the time I had two babies, a two year old and a four year old. Oh my goodness. And And you were getting ready to read 20 books to school yourself on on black Miami black history. So you could help build a curriculum. Of course. Of course. Of course. And my then husband was a full-time law student at the university of Miami. Wow. So I didn't really have a lot of time to, to do extra things on the weekend. So you're at school and you're thinking, I'm going to help develop this uh, black Miami history curriculum. Yes. And you figure, let me get a bunch of books from the library. To teach is to learn twice. Mm. And uh, to call and to um, have her tell me uh, her exact words. I guess those, well, when I asked for books, mm-hmm. if she pulled them and she came back and said, we only have a folder with obituaries. Oh, my gosh. And I said, why? And the answer she gave changed my life and the life of this community. She said, I guess 
those people haven't thought enough of themselves to write their history. Oh, my goodness. That's what, exactly what I what said. What a gut punch. Yes. That would go on to spark the creation of the Black Archive. That was Dr. Dorothy Jenkins Fields. She's the founder of the Black Archives at the Lyric Theater. You can listen to the full conversation on our website at wlrn.org forward slash sundial or in your podcast app. Just search for WLRN Sundial. Still to come, a conversation all about books. Joining me are two big book nerds, Connie Ogle, a national book reviewer, and Mitchell Kaplan of Books and Books. I'm Carlos Frias. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN during our spring pledge drive. I didn't grow up in a household that read. My father only half-joked he was illiterate. He called himself un analfabeto. He grew up on a farm in Cuba and was done with school by age 10. You could see it in his handwriting. My mom got as far as secretarial school in Cuba. She studied financial books and learned to run a business with my dad. But neither of them read for fun, so neither did I. It wasn't until I was in college and realized I wanted to be a writer that I learned I first needed to be a reader. The book that did it for me? Truman Capote's In Cold Blood, a groundbreaking crime book that blurred the line between nonfiction and the novel. I finished it and immediately reread it. I started reading voraciously after that, and I learned it's never too late to become a reader. I want to take that idea a step further. I talked to two of the best readers I know at the end of 2022. We talked to Connie Ogle, a national book reviewer and the former Miami Herald books editor, and Mitchell Kaplan, founder of Books and Books, and co-founder of the Miami Book Fair, one of the largest literary events in the world. They told me about some of the books they loved and also about the ones they're looking forward to reading this year. Mitchell brought in this amazing bag of books of things that he's excited about. There are two books here that look like uh, copies of the Bible. I, I think they <laughs> might be written on onion skin uh, paper. Well, uh, one of them is Abraham Verghese's book. He wrote Cutting for Stone. Okay. And uh, Cutting for Stone is probably the best audio book I've ever listened to. It's 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 a great book in and of itself. If you want to read it, you you would, it, that's fine. But um, the audio book is really great. And I'm looking at the size of this book uh, and it's, it's got to be like about 800 broker. pages. It's like the power broker. <laughs> no, the power broker is over a thousand well, pages. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's dense. For a book it's that dense. spans 1900 to 1977. It can't quite be yeah, pages. can't be a quick read. It's <laughs> called again. Enough. It's called the Covenant of it's Water. It's called the Covenant of Water, and I, I've gotten to know Abraham because, among I guess I got a gig, doing uh, being on the board of the Sun Valley Writers Conference, which is I turned down a lot of gigs, but I didn't turn that one down when they asked me to be on the board there because I get to go to Sun Valley every summer for a writing conference. And Abraham has been going there all the time. He's kind of a, a friend of the, the the conference there. Nicest guy in the world. And and really very heartfelt on everything he does because he's he's at Stanford, but he does a lot with a lot with um, helping to bring, you know, medical care to those who have a hard time getting it as well. It's interesting because we're talking about these books and, and we're having a connection with these writers and the things that they do and and these events and and I, I'm curious about the role you think that literature plays in building community. 
Like, I mean, there is, yes, like the, like the, if you know, you know club, right? Like if you've, you read a book and like we've read <clears throat> the power broker Moby Dick, you know, like once you feel that's kind of like a, that's kind of like a self pat on the back, but I'm talking about building community, right? Well, that's what I've been, that's, that's my reason for, for being, you might say. I mean, from the beginning of the time that I, you know, I'm from Miami, I happened to find myself back here knowing that I wanted to do a bookstore so many years ago, mm -hmm. uh, not being very sure whether or not there was a community of readers because I hadn't been here and I didn't know. And, you know, Miami didn't have the greatest rep back in the 70s, early 80s. No, no. You know, when we started the book fair, I would ask for a writer to come down and they would go, oh, we have this guy with a new non-prescription drug book. We're happy <laughs> to send them. Or we have this great beach read that we're happy to send them. And I said, no, 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 people are reading real stuff and that sort of thing. But I didn't know that until I opened a bookstore. So I opened a bookstore because I wanted, I wanted the community that I wanted to come to the bookstore. And they have. And what I'm seeing now is how a store, a physical place that sells books can become that third place right. after work, after home, where you go and you meet your neighbors. And we all know Miami is a hard place. To meet people, it's very car oriented and all of that. Sure. And the other thing is to see young people come, people in their thirties, the their twenties. They're coming. They're hanging out. They're there. We used to have a joke that we booksellers were following our customers to their graves. That once the last customer <laughs> died, we turned the light off, and that would be it. But now I'm really hopeful that there's this whole new generation that's coming up and reading. I mean, look at look at what Book Talk has done for yes. so many writers, um, and Book Talk, man, like like the it's like it's, this, a, it's like the Twitter like Book Twitter, but for TikTok. But it's TikTok. It's gotcha. TikTok, and and people, and and they're I mean, what are the users of TikTok? They're probably between the ages of eighteen and twenty five, yeah. most of them, and they post their favorite books. They post recommendations. There's a lot of fantasy writers that are very popular on there. A lot of Col romance, too. Colleen Hoover is a hu is huge on there. And this, people are reading. Are there some writers or specific books that you're already thinking about? Well, yes. there's a book. Do you want to read next? There's a book that, oh, no, you go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was just, it's a book that I actually gave to Connie. It's a book that, when you talk about those books that that make you think a little bit differently about a place, this book takes place in northern uh, Colorado. Okay. And I lived in Boulder. I went to school there. And I knew nothing about that whole area. It's a seventh generation Coloradan who wrote her first novel at the age of 50. Wow. Something. I love that. And it's called Go as a River. It's like where the crawdads sing kind of thing. Oh, I just so, read that. Yeah. I just read it's that. It's got that. It's got that. Uh, Should you, I comment on that? No, no. If you like it or not, <laughs> it's where the commercial meets the literary. But this has more literary than commercial. And it's really very evocative of um, takes you through a woman's relationship with her dysfunctional family, a Native American that she, she meets and falls in love with, and then this whole thing happening in northern Colorado. But it's go as a river. Connie, what, what, you, what about you? What are you looking forward to? Um, I'm, I'm blanking on the name of it, but uh, Rebecca McKay, Mackay, do you know how to pronounce it? M-A-K-K-A-I. Uh, so. She has a new book coming out, and I believe it's like a crime novel. <clears throat> right. uh, her, she's famous for a book called The Great Believers, which is about what the AIDS book. epidemic, which is one of the most heartbreaking things you could ever read, but so good. And I'm really curious to see what she does. I'm also looking forward to uh, Tananarive Dew's upcoming book. Oh, yes. The Reformatory 
which is uh, set in a school like the Dozier School um, in Wait, North Florida. Which uh, Colson Whitehead also wrote, wrote about. about yeah, but Tanana was re- Tanana was one of my students in high school. All right, we should I step back. So Tanana was a she was a student here in Miami. Yes, and she's, she now she's to, like one of the foremost. Uh, she became like horror black ho- horror. Black she's noir. black, obviously, but but like horror noir writers. Yeah. But, but but this novel is great. You, it, you I know it sounds so good, and it's you know about a haunted reformatory for boys in North Florida. I mean, and her uncle was actually in that reformatory, and she had been oh, working wow. on it before Colson's thing, because it meant so much to her that her uncle was at the Dozier's. So I'd say so. Go read. So this year, go read Colson Whitehead's Nickel Boys, and yes. wait on the reformatory. The reformatory that's coming out in the summer. All right, but to do all that, to do all that, because we're running out of time and I really want to get to this, is um, New Year's resolution reads. People always want to know how to read a little bit more, you know, and how to be more efficient about it. I, for me, I've realized Connie has, was a great example. Like now I get up in the morning a little earlier and I read in the mornings because I'm in that, in that um, dream state, you know, where, I, where I'm up and I'm having a cup of coffee and I can just focus on reading without looking at my book. What, what are some of your specific good tips to read I, more in the new I year. do love to read in the morning because I you know people wait till their day is over and then they read and you're tired you know yeah. you just start if you're lying and God help you if you're lying down you're going you're out but reading in the morning is really I, I really love to do that the other thing is you have to put your phone in a different room oh my god yes that I mean that's yep. my key because I will I mean I will scroll <laughs> with the best of them so if you put your phone in the other room and and also like we talked about before abandon a book if you don't like it if you're 50 pages in and you're struggling put it down maybe you come back to it maybe you don't that was mitchell kaplan the founder of books and books and connie ogle a national book reviewer you can listen to the full conversation on our website at wlrn.org or search your podcast app for wlrn sundial and that's sundial for thursday march 9th leslie ovaye atkinson is our lead producer elisa baena is our producer and social media editor Sergio Bustos is WLRN's VP of News, and Katie Munoz is our Director of Live Programming. Peter J. Meritz is WLRN's Vice President of Radio and Sundial's Engineer. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. You can download a podcast of this program. Just search for WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up next week on the program, filmmaker Nancy Spielberg She's not the only filmmaker in her family. Steven Spielberg is her older brother. We talk about her documentary titled Closed Circuit. It's about the 2016 terrorist attack at a market in Tel Aviv. I'm Carlos Frias. Thanks for listening.